right, all right, all right. Day 128. Welcome back to the Windows and Mirrors podcast. My name is Keith, and this is a podcast where we're trying to show you that the Bible is more like a window than it is a mirror. We come to it to see through it and see God, not to it to primarily look at it and see ourselves. All right, so Psalm 21 through 24. So we left off last time talking about Psalm 20, and the community was invoking this blessing and prayer for the victory of the king, right? Because they knew that his victory would mean their victory, right? And so we pick up in Psalm 21, and we have a psalm that has been historically linked with the previous one, right? And if 20 is where the prayer is made for victory, this psalm is basically the uh, praise and thanking of God for uh, victory itself. And so um, verse 1, we have... The text saying this, Lord, the king finds joy in your strength. How greatly he rejoices in your victory. In verse five, he'll he'll uh, keep going similarly with this. His glory is great through your victory, right? And you confer majesty and splendor on him. So we see early on in the psalm that the king, right, the one who's received the victory by the hand of God, receives glory himself, majesty himself, and splendor himself, but also joy, right? And this faithful king is praising and thanking God for the victory he accomplished, right, through him, right? And now, I love this psalm because if you look at verse 5, you have the same language that was used in the creation hymn of Psalm 8, where it talked of humanity being crowned with glory and majesty, which is this, um, which is like, yeah, rulership and dominion language. Now, and what the text is trying to say is that what the original humanity, Adam and Eve, failed to do as God's uh, co-regents on earth to rule the earth, what they failed to do in the garden, this king comes in and does it in their place, right? He does it in their place. And that's the good news is that we have this king who, uh, reverse the curse, right? The original humans brought forth the curse and he comes and brings this blessing. And so from there, verse eight shifts and the congregation is back speaking to the king and they address him with this confidence, right? And they say, yo, though they intend to harm you, talking of the enemies and devise a wicked plan, they will not prevail. Oh, I love it. Because what the psalmist is saying is that no scheme or plan against God, his Messiah, and his people will prevail. And I'm here to say today that that is good news. Not sin, sin won't prevail, false teaching won't prevail, division won't prevail, injustice won't prevail, false converts won't, right? Nothing will prevail against him. And because of this, we praise him, all right? And so Psalm 20 ends on this high note, and then we go with Psalm 22, right? And Psalm 22 switches the tone remarkably, right? And if you read today and you are familiar with the Bible in any capacity, uh, there are other parts of scripture that come to mind when you read Psalm 22. And it starts off this way. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, this has been called throughout church church history, the cry of dereliction. Right. So first and foremost, in looking at this song, we have to understand in its original context, it is a psalm of an innocent sufferer. Right. However, in light of the coming of Jesus. Right. Um, it points forward to his crucifixion. Right. So what's tricky about the psalm 
is that, yeah, Jesus says this on the cross, right? But also, this song extends past that cry, right? We kind of stop there, but it, it's, it has a lot more. It actually ends in a celebration, in a praise, in a vindication at the end, right? And so many people would say that, yo, Jesus had this whole psalm in mind when he was on the cross. Um, and, you know, if you look at Matthew 27, the whole uh, Matthew 27 parallels actually with this psalm. So from him being mocked, right? He literally was mocked from his clothes being cast at his lots. His clothes were literally cast at his lots. From them saying, if God were really with him, he would save him and mocking him, telling him to save himself, all of these things, it comes up here in the psalm. And so what's what's amazing then and what's re remarkable, though, is the fact that, you know, as Christians, right, as people who follow Jesus, the crucified king, there are times in this life when we will cry this, this exact same cry, right? When we will say, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And the way and that's the way it really, really seems. And it sucks and it's painful, right? But this psalm, what this psalm is saying is that that wasn't just a feeling or a perception or a misconstrual of reality for Jesus Christ, right? He really was abandoned by God as a man, an innocent man who lived perfectly, abandoned by God. But what's also caught up in the womb of that reality is that we would never be abandoned by God. Why? Because he took our punishment for sin, right? This, the cross is where human sin and God's justice collide so that we would know that we never have to face any of this life without God's presence, right? And then furthermore, at the end of this psalm, again, it goes on to vindication, right? And it goes from this problem in the beginning to this praise in the end. This psalm was the shape of Christ's life, where it went from crucifixion to resurrection, suffering and the glory. And the same is true for us. So even if today we find ourselves saying, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? We can look back at the cross and know that Jesus died in our place, meaning that we forever have the presence of God with us. But even more than that, we know that glory is coming because after three days, Jesus rose from the grave. Now, Psalm 23 comes. And Psalm 23, as most of us know, has to be the most celebrated, memorized, quoted, preached upon text uh, in the psalm itself, right? All throughout the Old Testament, God is mentioned as this shepherd, right? And his people are his sheep, right? And he is one who cares about his sheep and he protects his sheep. But more than anything in this psalm that I, I don't that I don't think gets emphasized enough is that this psalm shows that God is a shepherd, yes, but part of the function of him being a shepherd is that he's our leader, right? So it says this in the psalm, he says, he leads me beside quiet waters, right? He leads me along the right paths. And I'm here to tell you today, life is not so much about always knowing where you're going, but it's more about knowing who you are following. Let me say that again. Life isn't always just knowing uh, where you're going. It's just more about knowing who you're following. Guys, we are playing follow the leader to someone who cares for us more than our minds can imagine and protects us as we do it. 
That's the God we serve, right? And in verse five, it gets better, right? Because the metaphor switches and it basically says um, that God isn't just shepherding with his sheep, but we're like friends and we have fellowship with him, right? So God provides a type of hospitality and an invitation of blessing and fellowship and there's nothing nobody can do about it, right? Nothing, nobody, right? And verse six ends on a high note and I love verse six because it talks, it talks of dwelling in the house of the Lord. Now, it's so crazy because context just makes this huge difference, right? So if we remember in the Old Testament, you know, um, basically, um, dwelling in the house of the, going in the house of the Lord is, uh, meant only for the Levites and the priests, right? So if you were a Levite or a priest, you went and performed your work in the temple or the tabernacle, right? And the other Israelites weren't permitted. The priests went in there for the other Israelites. Now for David to say this, he can't mean that, right? Because he knows what the temple is about. However, right? The house of God is where God is permanently, right? So he means heaven, right? He means in God's presence, right? Eternally. And that's why at the end of this song, right? He literally says, as long as I live, but in Hebrew, I love it. It literally can be translated um, for all the days forevermore, right? David knows that this is his destination. And he says, yo, only goodness and faithful love will pursue me, right? In a song, in a book that's chock full of military terms, the psalmist says that his enemies won't pursue him forever, but faithful love, right? And, uh, you know, God's goodness will pursue him. And God is just this shepherd yeah, that cares for us so, so much. And the best thing about it is that it never ends. And then Psalm 24 comes and it's the last Psalm of this bunch. Um, and it's simply about God, who is the king of glory, right? And so he asked this rhetorical question in the middle of the psalm that gets at the heart of it. And it says this, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And what we learn here is that God is, at least in the psalmist's mind, you know, on his mountain and that he's holy, right? And one of the biggest questions of scriptures, of the scriptures is how could sinful men come into the presence of a holy God? How could sinfulness come into the presence of holiness? How could sinfulness come into the presence of royalty unattended? And the solution the Bible presents is that they can't, right? Inning of themselves, they can't, right? They need someone to enable them, right? They need someone to make their hands clean and their hearts pure, right? And that the beauty of this psalm is not only does this glorious king invite us to come into his holy place, he enables us to do it, right? And he does that in the death of his son, Jesus. Listen, the next time you lift your voice to sing and worship in the presence of the king of glory, remember that he made that reality possible, right? He did it himself. Our king is one who is strong, like the psalm is going to say. He's a warrior who the psalms uh, mention is mighty in battle. And ironically, you know the way he defeats his enemies? You know the way Jesus defeats his enemies? By dying for them. Bringing them into his family. By laying down his life. Right? That's the way he does it. That's the way 
That's the only pathway to worship God. And so as you worship God today with your life, I pray that you remember that he didn't just invite us to do this. He enabled it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, without you, we can do nothing. Without you, we can't worship you. And so God, help us to remember that we were saved to worship. Help us to not just do it with our lips. Help us to do it with our lives. It's in Jesus' name.